let's start Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called a Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I'm going to preach this morning. We're going to start on this first name, the name of Christ, the Mighty God. While John was on the Isle of Patmos, Christ appeared unto him and said these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Now as we preach and emphasize this year on the subject of faith, I think one of the best places to start is with the names of Jesus Christ and understanding who He is and what He wants to do for us. Jesus, the mighty God. Now, first of all and foremost, we have to understand Jesus is God. One of the reasons there are so many false religions is because instead of accepting the Bible as it is and as it reads, man tries to insert his own opinion. One of the doctrines that is hard to be understood is the fact that God is three. His triune And that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus is God. I love how Christ started his ministry in Luke chapter 4. When he goes into Nazareth, he there opens up the word of God in the temple, in the synagogue, and he begins to read. And he reads from a prophetical chapter in Isaiah 61, and this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this was prophetically speaking of the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So imagine this. This man walks in unknown, reads the scripture, closes the book, gives it to the minister, sits down, and there is silence. And then he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. He was claiming at that very moment to be the Messiah, the very Son of God. And from that day forth, his ministry started. It was a miraculous, supernatural ministry that changed the lives of countless thousands of people. You remember his first miracle there in Cain of Galilee as he goes to the wedding feast. And they ran out of wine. There he has them gather the pitchers together and fill them up with water. And with a simple word spoken, it changes from water into wine. Now, here's how we see him as the mighty God, his mighty in creation and over all creation because he is the creator. When we study the life of Christ here in the four Gospels, here's what we see. He turns the water into wine. He causes fish to jump into Peter's net and then stay there when the net is broken. He takes a few loaves and fishes and he feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children. He calms a raging sea. He casts out a legion of demons that were in the maniac of Gadara. He raises the dead back to life, and that was on several occasions. And by the way, one of those men had been dead for four days. And he simply steps back and cries out, Lazarus, come forth. 
That man that had been in the grave for four days came forth. He caused the blinded eyes to see. Limbs that were eaten away by leprosy were restored at his word. Ears that were deaf were made to hear. When Peter, how many remember when Peter cut off the soldier's ear and Christ simply touched the side of his head and it was restored back to normal? He spoke and the fig tree died. He stopped and a withered hand was made whole. Now you say, preacher, how did those things happen? Well, the Bible tells us, Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created. He is the maker of everything. Those things that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. John, one of the apostles, one of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone that ate with him, lived with him for three and a half years, said this in the first few verses of his gospel. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, here's what we normally do in speaking of Jesus Christ, the mighty God. We normally look at the magnificent. When we look at creation, we look at those things that are the most magnificent. I remember years ago visiting the Niagara Falls. The first time I saw it, it was in the middle of summer. It was absolutely gorgeous. And if you ever go there, go to the Canadian side. Regrettably, the Canadian side is much prettier than the American side. But as you look at the might and the power, and there's a a small vessel that's still stuck out there on the rocks, and they have, as legend says the captain of that ship was so fearful that that ship would break free and go over the edge of the cliff, over the edge of those falls, uh, that he turned gray overnight. I don't know if that's true or not. I didn't see the man, didn't talk to the captain. But I supposed it to be true. Hard to imagine. I've heard Jeff talk about the Victoria Falls and that it is five times greater, more powerful than the falls there in Niagara And Jesus Christ had the audacity to say, you see that right there? I made that. That makes him the mighty God. I grew up in the Rocky Mountains and saw the vast beauty. And we love to go there every year. But it's hard to believe that someone simply spoke and all of that was created. Hold on, not just the Rocky Mountains, but the Tetons. Jesus Christ made a All of that. Last year we took a group to the coast of San Diego. But that rocky coast is absolutely gorgeous. We were in Mexico for nine years. We put our feet in the soft white sand of the beaches of Mexico. And Christ said, I made that. I made all of that. I simply spoke it into existence. Can you imagine the disciples walking and talking with the maker, the creator of the universe, the mighty God? He made the sun. He made the moon. He made the stars. Now, although my mother's a science teacher, much of that I have forgot. So last night I refreshed my memory, wrote some things down. Uh, You do remember that the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. It's hard for us to even comprehend. That means at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, light takes eight minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. Now, let's put it into terms that we can understand. If you're in your car, now don't try this. If you attempted to travel to the sun in your car, 
60 miles an hour and you didn't stop to drink a Coke, eat a hamburger, or use the bathroom, it would only take 150 years, 150 years to get there. Say, preacher, I'm more efficient than that. I'm going to fly on a plane at the normal speed that a plane flies. It would only take 21.5 years if you didn't stop anywhere. 21.5 years just to travel to the sun. Now, hold on for a second, because when we think about the earth, we think about the planets, we think about the sun, we think about our galaxy. We think the earth is a large planet. Did you realize there are nearly 17 billion, billion with a B, earth-sized planets in our galaxy? We're just a dot. And Christ had the audacity to say, I did that. We think of the sun as a large sphere. It's large enough that it could hold one million earths, like the one we live on, inside. One million. But wait for a minute. The sun is actually a very small star. Now, I want Mark to help me. Mark, hit play so you can visualize for a minute the size of the stars. Seen from Earth, our sun is a blinding ball of light. But take away the glare, and one of the most powerful objects in the universe appears in our own backyard. It's a ball of superheated gas. The sun is 93 million miles away, and that means in actuality it's immense. You could fit a million Earths inside the sun. It's nearly a million miles in diameter, yet our sun is tiny compared to the really big stars out there. Eta Carinae, over five million times larger than our sun. Betelgeuse, 300 times larger than Eta Carinae. If it was our sun, it would reach as far out as Jupiter. And then there's this monster, V.Y. Canis Majoris, the largest star ever discovered, a billion times bigger than our sun. A billion times bigger than our sun would can hold a million planets the size of Earth. If I took a pen and tried to put a dot representing the sun compared to Canis Majoris. I couldn't even put a dot small enough to represent our sun. Now, hold on for a second, which could hold a million planets the size of Earth. Now, think about you're a dot on one of the million planets inside the sun, and that dot that we put would be too large in comparison to the largest star that we discovered when he said, I am the maker and creator of all. That's quite the statement. For Christ to say, you see that? I did that. I just spoke. And all that came into existence. I think we could call him the mighty God. His might's not just seen in the magnificent. It's seen in the miniature 
as well as the magnificent. Now, once again, I'm going to have to rely on those because my memory is not good enough to quote these facts. So I brought them with me this morning. The atom is one million times smaller than the breadth of a hair. And it's hard to grasp just how small the atom is that makes up our body until we take a look at the sheer number of them found in the body. So I wrote this number down. And I don't think we can understand it. But an adult is made up of around seven octillion atoms. And Christ said, oh, by the way, I did that too. You possess three trillion nerve cells, all coordinated by the brain. Three trillion. And Christ says, I did that. You have 131 million photoreceptors in your eyes. And Christ said, I made that too. You have 24,000 hair-like cells in your inner ear which react to sound and then convert it to nerve impulses. Oh, he made that too. 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. 35 million gland cells in your stomach that allow you to break down food. And those chemicals are so strong that they can dissolve metal, yet they don't dissolve your stomach. Every cell has one million million, hold on for a second, did you get that? Every cell has one million million bits of data in it, every cell. And Christ said, I did that. There are 30 million cells in your body with 10,000 functions. Let's just talk about the eye this morning. The eye basically has two functional parts, the physical mechanism through which we look and the receptor area of the retina where light triggers process in the nerve cells. Now, you don't have to understand any of this till we get to the bottom, but you do have to stay awake for just a minute. The retina is located inside the back of the eyeball, makes up the innermost layer of the wall of the eyeball. This thin layer of nerve tissue is about one-thirteenth of an inch thick. That's about, that's a little bit thicker than a dime. And it's as fragile as a piece of wet tissue paper. Light-sensitive cells in the retina translate the incoming light rays into electrical signals and then send them to the brain. The two kinds of light cells are called rods and cones. They're so named for their shape. The retina of each eye has about 120 million rods and 6 million cones. Let me repeat that. The retina of each eye has 120 million rods and 6 million cones. That means one square millimeter that's roughly about the size of a grain of salt. One square millimeter of the retina contains approximately 400,000 optical sensors. And Christ said, I made that. Now, here's what I don't understand. All these other religions look at Jesus Christ, deny that he is the mighty God, and call him a prophet. No prophet would look at those planets. Listen, if I told you that I were the maker of this pulpit, you would look at me cross-eyed and in disbelief. The pulpit. A speck on a planet. And Christ said, Yes, I made all of that. Do you see why we should refer to Him as the mighty God? 
Here's what's amazing. We consider ourselves such a big deal and our lives with so many problems. And he keeps this galaxy functioning. And we think he's not big enough to help us out. When he came to this earth, God in the flesh walked into that synagogue and said, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am God in the flesh. They should have fallen on their faces before an almighty, although he was in the form of man, humbling himself. He's still the mighty God. I can't even imagine, I'm not a scientist, I can't imagine someone like Brother Sullivan who has studied science and knows, actually knows what he is talking about to see the wonder and awe and how scientists can reject God, deny his existence and see how enormous this universe is. Now it's not just in creation, go with me to Mark chapter 2, but he was mighty in in making atonement for our sins. Mark chapter 2 talks about Christ, the beginning of his ministry. He's in Capernaum. He's in the house of Peter. They bring one sick of the palsy. They can't make it into the house, so they break open the roof, let him down. And Christ, seeing their faith, says unto this man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And how do these people respond? They say, Wow. This can't be taking place. This man can't speak of forgiving sins. No man can forgive sins. And they were right. Because no man can forgive sins. That would be blasphemous. And if he were not the very Son of God, if he were not God in the flesh, he could not have made that statement. Why could he look at this man and say, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And everyone else says, Blasphemy. Uh, Well, it wasn't because Jesus literally was God come in the flesh. And God had one purpose in sending His Son to redeem mankind from sin. Now think about this. Everything that was done in His life was done with the purpose of redeeming man from his sin. In order for Him to do that, He had to be God. He was going to have to live 33 perfect years. Try that. Try living 33 perfect minutes. Have you ever attempted it? You tried every January 1st. Right? You go into the new year and you say, I want to live as perfectly as possible and I'm not going to make the same mistakes in Jesus' name. Amen. And you wake up with the same flesh and the same sorry look and the same crabby sounding voice. And all those promises you just made are about ready to come undone before day 15th of the new year. And he made it 33 years overcame all temptation, never sinned, never lied, never had a bad thought pass through his mind. He conquered not just Satan, not just sin, but it would take the mighty God to sit through a trial and listen to the lies. He is God in the flesh. And they're bringing in witnesses, false witnesses, Lying witnesses in order to condemn him to death. Now, let me say this. This part of his life was much more difficult than the creation because creation, he simply spoke. He had to exert very little effort or energy to do that. He spoke the words and it happened. But redeeming man from their sins was totally different. 
Because he would have to become sin. He was God in the flesh. He would have to become sin in order to accomplish this goal. There on the cross, he became sin for us who knew no sin. He was put in the grave. Three days later, he came forth. Now think about this. Could a man in the flesh do any of this? Absolutely not. Man could not live without sin. Man could not endure what he endured. Man would not die for another. Man cannot, a man cannot die to pay for the sins of another man and justify him in the sight of God. He did this because he was the mighty God. But hold on for a second. It wasn't just in his death that we see the mighty God. They put him in a borrowed tomb. You know why? They said, I only need it for three days. Three days later, he arose from the grave. But they shouldn't have been surprised because he already told them about this back at the resurrection of Lazarus. What did he told them? Go with me quickly to John chapter 11. He had already stated this to Mary and Martha and those that were present. John chapter 11 Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, unto Martha, I am the resurrection. Now, this is not what man says without looking extremely ridiculous. I appreciate these men of God that God has sent our way. But if one of them were to stand behind this pulpit and proclaim, I am the resurrection, I would sit him down, refuse him a love offering, and ship him out of town as quickly as possible. Christ said, I am the resurrection. How blasphemous would this be if he were not the mighty God? But he was the resurrection. He was the life. And he said, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he meant it. Because although your body may see death, your soul will live forever. If you put your faith and trust in Him, if you have believed in Him, you'll never die. And then He asked her, Believest thou this? And she did. He was the mighty God. It's hard to think that Jesus Christ was on this planet for 33 years. It's hard to think that He ministered for three years and after everything that He did, having witnesses. Remember the ten lepers at one time come up to Him and simply... When he says, go show thyself to the priest, and on their way they look, and and those limbs that were gone are now restored to perfect health. How could not those in their family, the friends, those that knew this to be true, it would be something else for a perfect stranger having never met them, having never seen their condition, having been totally ignorant of what they had suffered over the course of their lifetime, I can understand their disbelief or unbelief that they'd been made whole. But what about those that had seen them, that knew them, that had walked by them, that had understood their pain and their suffering, now to see them perfectly whole? How could you not look at the man who did that as God, the mighty God? Science and technology 2,000 years later still could not accomplish a miracle on that level. How could you not believe when there's a man that's been there on the side of the road begging a blind man for years and years and Christ simply comes and touches his eyes and now his eyes are restored to perfect sight. How could you not believe that this was 
the very Son of Man. How could you not uh, understand having seen the raging storm, he speaks. And in just a minute, listen, even when a storm stops, it stops gradually. Waves don't just go from six feet to perfect calm. That takes hours, depending on the size of that body of water. So for a man to speak and suddenly, it's clear, it's calm, there are no waves, the rain has stopped, the lightning has ceased. How could you not see and understand this is the mighty God? How could you not help but believe when there's a crowd so vast you can't count them, you can't number them, when it said 5,000 is speaking purely of men, a group of fifteen or 20,000 people are spread across these hills and he takes food that he can hold in two hands. That won't feed a teenage boy. A semi-hungry teenage boy. Stuart could have devoured this. This was the lunch of a small lad. And mom had not sent him the full meal deal, but the kitty dinner, the happy meal. And he broke it and he blessed it and had 12 baskets. If he had simply blessed it and filled 12 baskets, that would have been a miracle. But to break it and to Feed 20,000 people. How could you not say, this is the mighty God. But could any man come and die for sin if he were not the mighty God? To call him a prophet is crazy. To claim him to be nothing more than a teacher is insane. This man was absolutely a lunatic on a level that we can't comprehend, or he was the very Son of God. That's why the Bible calls him the mighty God. Now, if he was the creator of everything, no wonder he could speak to a tree and literally watch it die. If he created food, could he not recreate food? He was the Savior, and he not only dies, he's put into that tomb. He, after three days, gets up and walks out. Now, it gets better turn to Mark chapter 16. He is the mighty God. It's amazing how limited we are in power. Have you ever thought about how many things you'd like to do you simply can't do? You're limited. There are things you can't lift. There are places you can't go. There are things you can't buy because you haven't made the money. There are things you'd like to remember. You just can't remember them anymore. Listen, we're so limited when my son, who is a senior, brings me problems. He'd bring me that math problem and say, Dad, can you help me figure this out? And I'd think about it and I'd pray about it. I said, nope, certainly can't. Dad, didn't you take physics? Didn't you take geometry? Didn't you take calculus when you were in high school? Absolutely. I didn't remember it when I took it. You're talking about 20 years later. How many times have you wanted to help your child? How many times have you wanted to help your mate? How many times have you wanted to help people, but you understood your limitations and you said, although the desire is in my heart, I just can't do it. I don't have the resources.
resources. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength to do it. And then the older you get, the more you realize your limitations. And something as simple as weeding or mowing the yard, it now exhausts your energy. And the next day you wake up feeling like you're ten years older. We don't like our limitations, do we? Did you know that while Jesus Christ was on this earth, He had no limitations. He was the mighty God. But after He comes out of the tomb, for 40 days He's seen by hundreds of people, primarily the disciples, but then He speaks to them and tells them to be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth, verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was, look what it says, received up into heaven. Okay, folks, this doesn't happen unless you're the mighty God. And the Bible tells us he will return in the same fashion, the same manner, and he will rule and reign forever because he is the mighty God. Christian, I think our problem in, in exercising our faith is the very foundation of our faith. We don't understand when we talk about Jesus Christ and the person who indwells us, that is the mighty God, not someone limited in power. When we're thinking about our needs, when we're thinking about whether those are spiritual needs, emotional needs, physical needs, He is the provider of those needs. He can simply speak the word. I've spoken to people about the building, and I'm amazed at the disbelief in people's eyes. And they say, well, preacher, don't you understand the economy? Don't you understand the giving? Don't you understand the expense? Don't you understand? Listen, instead of looking through the eyes of faith at an unlimited God with unlimited resources, we're measuring our faith By looking at the problems of society, the limits of our finances, saying, boy, I don't don't know if this can ever come together. It certainly can. Not because who we are or what we have, but because we serve a mighty God. Jesus was God in the flesh, revealed to man, the mighty God. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 28. Let's make this practical. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Then what does he say? Knowing this, having made this statement, he's looking at the disciples and he said, All power is given unto me now. Here's the command. Here's what you need to do with this power. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. Can you imagine the disciples doing this without his power? I want you to go and build my church. You don't want to do that without his power. Not without knowing he is the mighty God. The almighty God. And he's saying all power, all authority are given unto me. And I am extending that to you. I'm offering you that power. Go ye, therefore, how are we going to teach people? Listen, you are going to say words to go out into the air. Go through someone's ear channel. And they're supposed to go from their ear to their mind and from their mind to their heart. 
and that's supposed to produce some kind of spiritual reaction, you better have God's power when you do that. You can't accomplish much without His power. Here's what he said. I want to revolutionize the world. I want to see the lost saved. I want the gospel to spread across every nation on this planet. And he said, I am the mighty God. All power is given unto me. Now you go, you teach, you preach, you baptize. Can you imagine us trying to do God's work in this setting without his power? Now, here's why you ought to go with confidence. You've seen what God has done in your life. Do you remember the maniac of Gadara, why he was such a powerful witness? Because his life had been so revolutionized by the power of Jesus. Here's a man that was absolutely insane, made sane, out of control, made controlled. A wild man, a savage, a beast. And Christ came and spoke and he was saved and his life was changed. And through that testimony, hundreds, yea, thousands of people were changed and souls were saved. Uh, Do you remember Lazarus? John 11 and 12, after his resurrection, when he went forth, the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus the same way they wanted to kill Jesus Christ. Why? That's a pretty powerful testimony when you walk around and say, you know what, I was dead for four days. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. I mean, they had the funeral. How'd that go? I don't know, but <laughs> I was there. I just can't remember much. So what happened? Did you see the light? Well, I saw the light of the world. Now, he testified of paradise because that's where he went. But can you imagine? He's, he's going around telling people, hey, everyone was crying at my funeral and they thought it was over. They thought I was done. But I was in paradise. And it is a bummer coming back too. Trust me on this one. <laughs> I mean to tell you, my bones weren't aching, life was good, the food was better than I've ever eaten before, and then suddenly, bam, I'm back. And I hear this voice that says, Lazarus. And it's a voice that all creation obeys. I had to obey. I was trying to hang on to my seat in paradise, but I lost it. And out I come, and everyone's been crying, and they look happy again. Even my sisters looked happy for a little bit. Can you imagine someone with that kind of power? But he comes back, he tells his testimony, hundreds get saved. So many get saved that the Jews say, we've got to shut this man up. How do we shut him up? How do you shut up a man who's been resurrected from the dead, having been dead for four days? This was a powerful testimony. And your testimony, if you have been changed, and you should be changed, and the world should notice your change... The way that the gospel becomes powerful when people see the change in your life and you express what God has done for you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a mighty God. And you know what any other place, organization, or three-step program can't do for you? They cannot produce permanent change. You ever notice those that go to, what is it, double-A meetings? And they stand up to testify and they say, you know, I am a drunk. You've been saying that for 23 years. Those programs and those organizations can't make a permanent change in anyone, but Jesus Christ can make a permanent change because he is the mighty God. All power 
And then he says this, you have that power. You have that power. Now go. Here's why we don't go with faith and power. We don't understand. God has said, I can exercise that power through you. And if you go without his power, oh boy, what a miserable experience that will be. Don't try to testify without his power. We've all attempted that on some level. That's discouraging. That is frustrating. But he says, I have that power and I want to give that to you. Now, this is a message that demands a response, some kind of reaction. Go with me to John for just a minute. It demands an immediate reaction. This is a truth that you just can't sit on because the, the world has heard it. Most don't believe it. John 8, either it's a lie. And if it is a lie, you should close this book, walk out of church and never come back. If Jesus is not God, there's no reason to be here this morning. There's no reason to be religious. There's no reason to attend church. There's no reason to be baptized. If Jesus wasn't God, why are you going to be identified with Him, buried in His baptism, risen to walk? You're being identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of someone that didn't exist or someone who was not God or someone who did not come back from the dead. Then you have no reason to do anything else that this book expects or demands. John chapter 8, verse 57. I don't want to read all the context to you, but Christ is preaching here. And the primary subject in the message is Abraham. Verse 57, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Thou hast seen Abraham, because he was speaking of Abraham. And he spoke of your father Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, he was glad. And they said, How can this be? You're only in your thirties. Abraham lived 1,900 years ago, and you saw him? Hold on for a second. This is where it gets really interesting. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to thee, Before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. Can you imagine this kind of a statement if he wasn't the mighty God? We're talking about George Washington. We're we're not even going back 2,000 years. Let's just go back a couple hundred years. And as I teach that history class, and they ask me about George Washington, I say, I just want you to know before George Washington was, I am. That would be an interesting class. (laughs) Mom, you know what the teacher said today? Before George Washington was, I am. What is that supposed to mean? That means we leave that class and never come back again. Because that guy is a wacko. Now... Obviously, there's no miscommunication here. There's no misunderstanding here because the immediate reaction of him saying, before Abraham was, I am, their immediate response is this. Then took they up stones. As soon as he says this, they're looking around for rocks because they want to bash this guy's brains out. But Jesus hid himself. So he leaves the temple and hides after having said, you know Abraham. Your father Abraham, the icon of the Israelites, the father of the Jews, before Abraham was. And they're waiting. I am. You know why he could say that? He was the mighty God, the everlasting father, the eternal one. Look what it says in chapter 10, verse 33. Repeatedly, he was making himself God, the Son of God, the eternal God. 
the mighty God, verse 29, my Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he says this, I and my Father, they know he's speaking of God the Father, Jehovah God. He says, I and my Father are one. Look at their response once again. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They want to kill this man. And listen, if he were not God, that would be your reaction. If someone you knew, if a preacher you respected stood up and said, I and my heavenly Father, God the Father, we are one. I am God. And then he looked at you. Your response would be what? This man is crazy. Or he is God. He can't be both. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you for my Father. From which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Was there any confusion about what Jesus Christ or who Jesus Christ was claiming to be? None at all. He said, I am the mighty God. Now, you have one of two choices. This is going to cause one or two reactions. I just can't simply believe that Jesus is God. And this is where Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. Mormons deny Jesus is God, the mighty God, the almighty God. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you show them. It doesn't matter that Jesus in his ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of these books repeatedly, you can find in every single chapter, time after time, verse after verse, quotation after quotation, where Christ makes himself to be God, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it causes great conflict with the Jews. He was God. Or you can make a wise decision and do what you should do, accepting him as God. John chapter 9, verse 35. Remember the story of the blind man? He had been blind for a long, long time. Jesus had made clay, anointed his eyes, told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he received his sight. The Pharisees keep annoying him. Do you remember that? They keep saying, whose follower are you? Were you really blind? Were you clinically blind or you were just claiming... You're a fake. You're one of those that went to Benny Hinn meeting and you really didn't have anything at all and then you got killed and you walked out all happy for not having had anything happen at all. You're a fake. You're a fraud. He said, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I do know this. That man touched my eyes and I received my sight and I'd been blind for a long time and now I see everything perfectly well. And he was repeatedly attacked, repeatedly criticized. He'd given up trying to convince them. Jesus Christ comes back. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out of the temple, out of the synagogue. And when he had found him, he said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord? He didn't know who he had met with. Although Christ had just healed his eyes, he still hadn't dawned on him. This is the mighty God. He said, Lord, who is he that I might believe on him? And Jesus said to him, Thou hast both seen him. Now that you can see, you're looking at him. And it is he that talked with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. This message demands a response. Because when you see and read and hear of Jesus Christ, 
you only have one of two choices. Deny that he was God, which means we have no Messiah, we have no Savior, we have no truth. This book is a lie. Jesus was a lie. His life was a lie. His death was a lie. His resurrection was a lie. His ascension was a lie. His return is a lie. But if Jesus was the mighty God, that means your sins have been paid for. That means the mighty God indwells you. That means the mighty God wants to help you. That means your problem, no matter how overwhelming, your circumstance, no matter how desperate, Christ says, I can handle that. You remember those stars and their size, the galaxy and the planets? I spoke that. It wasn't even an effort. And I can do it again. I created life. I created you. Here's an amazing thing. To think about the galaxy and the planets and the solar systems, not just our solar system, the solar systems in existence. And that we're just a speck. And you don't even have to get on an airplane to lose sight, not just of your family or your house, but of the city. Now back all the way up where you can see the entire galaxy. And you're a speck so small, and God sees that little speck. He not only sees it, He knows you personally. He knows every feeling, every emotion, every problem, every need, every heartache. He knows you personally, wants to have a personal walk, a personal relationship. The creator of all of that. How, Pastor? He's the mighty God. Now, how can we not have faith? If I have faith in earnest, the man who has failed, the man whose track record is not perfect, good, yes, fine man, yes, just not perfect, limited in power, limited in funds, limited in resources, limited in ability, if I can put my faith in that man, how could I not put faith in the man who created that man? Thousands and yay, millions of years with a perfect track record. Never failed, never faltered, never messed up. And he says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He that believeth in me, he'll never die. Why wouldn't you respond and say, if anyone could say that he was a mighty God, it was Jesus. No one else can make that statement. There are a lot of good men in history. No one else that ever walked this planet can make that statement. The wisest thing you could do in your life is understand Jesus Christ was the mighty God. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.